Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. All right, so we are in our fourth week already of the study of the Minor Prophets. And just want, as usual, I want to take a minute here to kind of recap what we've, what we've learned so far. Because like I've stated, you know, from the very beginning, my goal is for us to come away from this course, from, you know, from this module, really kind of having an, a big picture idea, being able to remember, okay, that's what, that's what that book was about. That's what that book was about. So first week, we studied Obadiah, which, does anybody remember who Obadiah, who the audience was, who Obadiah was prophesying to? Edom, the Edomites. And who were the Edomites? Descendants of Esau. And was it a good message or a bad message? Bad. What had they done? What had the Edomites done to incur God's wrath? They harassed Israel in their time of need. They harassed Israel in their time of need. And that, you know, kind of a pattern even. I think it's a very good way of putting it. Uh, over and over, kind of kicking Israel when they were down, not treating them like brothers which really, Esau was Jacob's brother. They, there was common ancestry there. So then we talked about Jonah. Jonah was prophesying to who? Ninevites. The Ninevites. Good. And the Ninevites, anybody remember who the Ninevites were? Assyrians. Assyrians. And we're going to be talking about Nineveh again today, actually, because Nahum is also a prophecy to the Ninevites. Micah, that's what we talked about last week. Does anybody remember who the book of Micah was written toward? Judah, Judah, yeah, so Judah, yep, exactly. Judah and Israel, or Jerusalem and Samaria. So really, these were, Micah was a book to God's people. There's a lot in there. I think probably how I would, if I had to give it like a, you know, very short title, I'd probably, or a description, I'd probably say, Israel and Judah's unfaithfulness and God's mercy. So that's kind of what you see a lot of prophecies toward them for all the ways they failed God, but then you see all these great prophecies about God's mercy toward them, promising the Messiah, you know, his forgiveness. So, and then we get to Nahum. Nahum is an interesting book, I would say, unlike Micah last week where, you know, there are just these beautiful messages of comfort throughout it and of forgiveness and assurance. This book is somewhat unique because it's, it's pretty much unmitigated wrath and destruction now it's a prophecy against one of Israel's enemies. So, you know, there's a sense that destruction to Israel's enemy means salvation for Israel, right? Uh, so it is, there is some consolation there, but it really is a message of wrath. And I think that a lot of Christians today tend to ignore a lot of the Old Testament, especially prophets, because of the wrath of God that we see. Uh, and, you know, they can, there, there's this theological error out there that is very prevalent. Actually, probably most of the evangelical church in America would subscribe to it. And it's called dispensationalism. Has anybody heard that term before, dispensationalism? So kind of the core belief of dispensationalism or the core thought, uh, you know, kind of run through this, this system of theology is that Israel and the church should be distinguished as two separate entities. Israel meaning like the Old Testament Hebrew people. Distinguished 
as two separate enemies, two different peoples with different fates, different treatments by God. And there's a lot of implications to this. There's actually like end times eschatological implications. They have, you know, people who are dispensational tend to believe in a, a rapture and, you know, certain things like that. Uh, but as it pertains to us today, and probably, you know, one of the more important implications of this is they believe that the Old Testament Hebrews were not saved by the same mechanism that we were. Uh, you, you know, we believe, and I think what's clear throughout Scripture is the Old Testament Hebrews were saved by grace through faith in Jesus. By grace through faith. They were looking forward to Jesus. They didn't know his name yet, right, like we do. But we were saved by grace through faith in Christ. And what this means, though, is that to, to a lot of people, the Old Testament is a nice set of stories. It teaches us some nice things about God. It teaches us, you know, how he treated his people. But it's not personal. But for us, what, what we can read, we read in Romans and all over the New Testament, that God, you know, we were grafted in to the people as Gentiles in today's church. We were brought into that people of God. It was the same, it uses this analogy of a tree and said, like, we're a branch that got grafted into this tree of God's people. But the tree didn't change. There wasn't one tree in the Old Testament and then a new tree. It's all part of the same tree. But what that means for us is those promises of God 3,000 years ago to the Hebrews are promises to us. They're not just comforting because they show us some nice things about God. They show us that we have the same promises. And along the same token, the messages of wrath that we see in the Old Testament are messages that we should take seriously. It's not just something that we can say, okay, oh, that only, you know, we, we can just kind of write that off because, uh, you know, is under a different dispensation than we are under today. Um, it's very common for people to ignore sections of scripture like this that, that make them feel uncomfortable. And when we do that, unfortunately, we come away with an incomplete understanding of God. We want our understanding of God, this is why we study scripture, we want our understanding of God to be honest and true and full because there's so much in the scriptures that where he teaches us about himself. But, you know, I think the fact that, for instance, a lot of churches today will not focus on the fact that God has wrath and that God is a holy God and he, we're called to fear him. Uh, it causes us to deteriorate our view of God and of God the Father. And, you know, I think we can kind of look around mainstream Christian media, mainstream Christian music, and, and see that this really is the case. There's not an emphasis on the wrath of God. And this is something that is, if we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, we need to understand, understand this. So that, this is why Nahum is interesting. It's, it's a corrective almost. It, it should jump right out to us, to our you know, 21st century sensibilities, like, man, God has standards of holiness. God has wrath, and this is not something that we can just say, okay, you know, it makes us uncomfortable. We're not going to think about it. We, we really should um, take this into consideration when we're, when we're thinking of God. So all that, just kind of a little bit of background on Nahum before we get into it. So with Nahum, we'll follow the same pattern in the lesson, talking about the history, then the outline of the book, and then Christ and his church, and then finally how we, um, how we can learn from this, how we put it into practice today. But with Nahum, interestingly, he, his name 
means comfort or consolation. It's a really a shortened version of the word Nehemiah in Hebrew. It says that he's from this town called Elkosh. I didn't put a star on the map here to show where he's from because we really don't know much about Elkosh. Uh, the something unique about Nahum is it's actually described as a book rather than like just a set of prophecies. So there's many people who think that it was distributed like as a pamphlet almost or some sort of written material distributed. Um, but he, again, we are not told exactly when he was prophesying, but we can kind of pinpoint it based on uh, some, some what we know about history in, uh, in historical context from outside the scriptures too. So Nahum is essentially a sequel to Jonah. I'm going to pull up this just to talk through it a little bit. Uh, as far as the timeline of the scriptures, well, I'll go back to this slide and just refresh us high level. So you see the yellow and the blue. Why is there two colors? Why is there a yellow and a blue? Does anybody remember? The kingdoms have split. The have split. Right. So this was after King Solomon, uh, which was David's son. King Solomon's son came along was kind of a jerk to everybody in the northern kingdom, which was 10 of the tribes. They split off and said, hey, we don't need the house of David anymore. We don't need the line of David. We don't need to, we're going to make our own kingdom with our own king. So that was the northern kingdom with Samaria. And then there's the southern kingdom with, um, with Judah. So as far as when we can kind of understand um, Nahum to be written, it was after... <laughs> the um, exile of the northern kingdom. So there's two countries that came, and we're going to kind of talk actually in a bit about the, this idea of exile, but there's two countries that came in uh, to exile. The, Babylon, the Babylonians carried Judah into exile, and the Assyrians, which is Nineveh, carried Israel into exile. So Nineveh, we talked about this with Jonah, and you guys mentioned it, the capital of Assyria, and Jonah was written before any of the exile happened. If you'll recall, with Jonah, God said, go to Nineveh. He didn't like the, the Assyrians. He knew that it was a wicked country. They were kind of this aggressor to a lot of the surrounding lands. Uh, but then Nono, Jonah went, and he preached repentance to Nineveh. And what happened? They repented, yeah. They turned away from their sins and repented. So what has happened now in between Jonah and today. Well, like I mentioned, there, at this point, Assyria came and in the year 722 BC, that's when Assyria came to carry off uh, the country into exile. And then what else has happened since then? Well, Assyria actually came to attack Judah as well. There, there's the story, it's in um, Chronicles, but it's also in Isaiah, it really kind of fleshes it out as well. Assyria came to try to attack Jerusalem. And this is when Hezekiah was king. So uh, it would have been shortly after, uh, shortly after the northern kingdom was exiled. They came down during Hezekiah's reign to try to capture Judah as well. And uh, the king, Sennacherib, 
of Assyria was there and he had some wicked generals who basically were going and say, making fun of God, saying, oh, you know, your God is just like the other nations. You think your God can stop us? Do any of these other nations' God stop us? And uh, then Hezekiah prayed to God, called out to him, and God said, okay, I'm going to make the Assyrian army hear a rumor of a war in their land, and they're going to turn around and go back and leave you guys. So, sure enough, they heard a war, uh, you know, a rumor of this war in the other land, and then Rabshakeh, who is this general of the Assyrian army, sent another letter to King Hezekiah and said, hey, you think you got off the hook? Don't, don't let you think it's your God, you know, and then mocked God again. He's like, you know, don't, don't think it's your God that saved you. Uh, and then Hezekiah took that letter, went to the temple of God, spread it out, kneeled down before him in the temple and said, God, here's, here's what they're saying about you. Uh, you know, deliver us. That night, God sent an angel of death into the camp of the Assyrians and killed 185,000 of the Assyrians, dead. Just woke up the next morning, they were all dead. And, which is a massive number. But it said after that, the king, Sennacherib, he was not killed. He went back to Jerusalem, I mean Nineveh, and was killed later in Nineveh by his own sons. But they didn't bother, needless to say, they didn't bother Judah again. Uh, but that's kind of what has been happening in the meantime. Assyria has been continuing to plunder these other nations. They destroyed Thebes, which is an Egyptian city, uh, which actually Jeremiah had prophesied about too. Nineveh was, at this point, when the time this prophecy is written, they were the power. They, they were, uh, the wall around the city, three chariots could go abroad. It was huge, massive city, and virtually impenetrable. So this prophecy against the city would have kind of seemed somewhat incredulous at the time when, when it's being written, because they were just at the height of their power. So I do want to spend a little bit of time, really before we even get into the text, I want to spend some time talking about this idea of an exile. Because it's something that I've mentioned, it shows up in every book that we've looked at so far. Some sort of exile. I keep mentioning the exile, the exile. You know, Babylon brought Israel into exile, and so did Assyria. So, what's the idea of the exile? Where does this come from? Was this like a new concept? Well, actually, this idea of an exile was something that dates way back to even the beginning of Deuteronomy, maybe even before that, uh, where there's promised punishment by God for, um, for abandoning him. He's, he promises that you are going to be exiled and carried away from this promised land into a foreign land. So there's a few verses that I want to read here. This is from the end of Deuteronomy. I'll just read it. There's also some similar verses at the beginning. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, and a nation whose language you shall not understand, of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old or show favor for the young. This is talking about if they don't follow God. This is a warning to the people of Israel if they don't follow God. Then you'll be left few in number, whereas you were numerous as the stars of the heaven, because you did not obey the Lord your God. And you will be torn from the land where you are entering, so they'll be torn from the promised land, to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, 
which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you will find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. So there's this promise. Okay, if you guys reject, if you guys reject God, I'm going to carry you and I'm going to send another nation to pluck you out of your land and bring you away. But it doesn't end there. God promises restoration. Every time there's exile promise, he promises restoration. So listen to this. So it shall be when all of these things have come about upon you, the blessings and the curse that I have set before you, and you call into mind all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart. So it basically, once you're in exile, if you repent, if you turn to God, skip it down a little bit, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the end of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed and you will possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Do you remember this idea of the remnant we talked about last week? What was the concept of the remnant? Does anybody want to share? Yes. The leftover people that God reserved from destruction. That's good. I like the leftover term. So God promises that he's going to destroy the people, bring them into exile. He says there's going to be a little bit left, but that little bit that's left, I'm going to make more glorious than you ever were before. And that's what it's saying right here. You shall possess it. He'll prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. So this idea that we talked about with Michael last week with the remnant goes back way further than that before they even enter the promised land. And then let's take a look at this. This is from Solomon's prayer. So this is what Solomon preached or prayed to God. This is a public prayer when he was dedicating the temple. And they said, When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and deliver them to an enemy, so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Solomon knows that this is like par for the course. He knows that this is the punishment that God has promised. When they abandon you and you carry them far off, he knows that there's this idea of the exile as a punishment for their sin. And again, this restoration. If they return to you with all their hearts and their soul and pray to you toward their land which you have given their fathers, then hear their prayer and supplication in heaven with your dwelling place and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all the transgressions which they have transgressed against you and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive. I'm not going to read the rest of it, but you, you get the idea. Hopefully what you see is there is this idea in Scripture that far predates the book of Nahum, that far predates the actual events happening in 722 and 586 B.C. that is part of God's plan, part of his plan for deliverance for his people, that he's going to give them this promised land, then they're going to turn to idols, and then he's going to go pluck them out of the promised land, scatter them out throughout the earth, and then he's going to restore them and make them more glorious after that exile than they ever were beforehand. So this is, this is the context of the book of Nahum. This is why when we hear, like, okay, well, you know, why is Nineveh so important? Well, Nineveh is this tool, one of the tools God used to execute this plan. This was not a 
just you know unexpected thing with this country popping up and instantly gaining power that nobody saw coming. This was part of God's plan in his scheme for his people. So I know we spent a lot of time on, on, uh, on background today, but I think it's important. I think it helps us just to understand like why, why Nineveh is such a big deal, why we just keep seeing these themes of exile that we're talking about. So within the book of Nahum then, it's a short, shorter book, three chapters, and kind of broken it really kind of by chapter in, into these sections. First, the might and majesty of the Lord. We'll read some excerpts from that. And then the destruction of Nineveh. And then <laughs> Nineveh's complete ruin. So again, not the same types of messages of mercy that we see in, uh, in Micah, for instance. So, can I get a volunteer to read this verse nice and loud? Thank you. So this is the beginning of the book. Remember how I mentioned this can offend our sensibilities in today's day and age? It, it really comes in, this is scary. This is like God is coming in. God is avenging, wrathful. He has this anger. He's melting the mountains, breaking up the rocks. I mean, you read this and see like it, was, it should strike fear into our hearts. But again, this is the scripture. This, this is important for us to understand that God <laughs> hates sin. The sin that we have, he hates that sin. He, you know, thankfully, the, we're not, if we believe in Jesus, we're not subject to this wrath because Jesus took that wrath for us. All the punishment that Jesus had on the cross was that level of wrath being poured out on him so that we didn't have to face it. It should make, you know, it should, it should make us stand back and say, like, wow, like, the blood of Christ on us is, is huge and rich and worth so much because that is the reality of what Jesus saved us from and what he went through for us. Interestingly, it's not up here, there's... Also, in verse 11, it talks about this wicked counselor that was in Assyria, and it seems to be referring to Rabshakeh. Remember the, the counselor, the leader of the army who wrote Mocking God? Kind of calls him out specifically. And at the end of this chapter, there's a quick warning to Judah to keep the terms of their covenant with God. And the implication of that is if they, if they do fail, then they could end up in the same category as, as Nineveh. All right. So at first it's like God, God is coming. God is wrathful. He's mighty. He's powerful. And then it kind of switches gears to focus like, okay, where is his wrath being directed now? So this is the second chapter. Someone want to read a couple or these verses here? AJ, go ahead.
plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is empty, yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also, anguishes in the whole body, and all their faces are grown pale. Thank you. So this is this is very poetic, right? I think sometimes when you have a a prophecy like this, it is helpful to break it apart and kind of understand what you, which each piece is saying. What we kind of see is uh, this is a scene almost of Nineveh being ransacked. This idea of plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no limit. Somebody is coming in and ransacking all the riches. Because think about it, Nineveh had gone and ransacked all these other nations in the entire surrounding area, brought all their treasure and wealth back to Nineveh. So Nineveh has a ton of gold, a ton of silver. They've just had these immense riches, wealth from every kind of desirable object. So this, this scene, and again, this is only two verses out of the chapter, but this scene, you, you kind of get a picture of what's happening to Nineveh. Nineveh is being ransacked and all their, everything they've built is being depleted. And this is actually what happens. This is not in scripture, the things I'm going to mention. Uh, but we know them about history, just through other extra biblical records. And there's these, <laughs> over and over, there are these things that have kind of been fulfilled. So in verse 10, it says, like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they, that's Nineveh, are consumed as stubble completely withered. So when Nineveh fell, the king of Assyria was celebrating his success and had given his soldiers a ton of wine, like a lot of wine. And they were just partying, completely drunk. <laughs> and that's when the city was ransacked. So like those who were drunken with their drink. Oh, they were drunk. The Tigris River overflowed its banks. It says that right here, I think, in verse 8. Um, oh, like through, yeah, through Nineveh was like a pool, of, or though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days. Oh, actually, I know maybe I don't have that one up there. It says, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. The Tigris River had overflowed its, its banks, and like a flood, like an overflowing flood, made a complete end of its sight. That's what actually happened. This whole thing with plunder the silver, plunder the gold, there's no limit to the treasure. So it sounds like a deserter from the army informed the Babylonians. So the Babylonians were actually the ones who ransacked Nineveh and came in and kind of accomplished all this. A deserter came and told the Babylonian army about, hey, here's where all the riches are at. Um, I'm sure hoping to spare his life. But sure enough, they entered the breach in the city, plundered the gold and all the silver and hauled it off. And then in verse, uh, let's see, in chapter 311, it says, you will be hidden. It says about Nineveh, you will be hidden. Nineveh, the ruins of Nineveh were completely obliviated from the face of the earth. And we didn't know, I think like 1842 or something like that. Like within the last couple hundred years is when they found Nineveh. For thousands of years, it was like, literally completely hidden. Nobody even knew where the city was, which is crazy. You know, most of the big cities like this, people at least kind of know where they are, right? Historically speaking, it was wiped out. All right. So chapter three, again, 
<laughs> more destruction for Nineveh. Does someone want to read this verse? Thank you. Chapter 3 is very much in the same vein as chapter 2, as far as just these different prophecies about how Nineveh is going to be destroyed, kind of like we looked at in the last slide. What's interesting, though, is God makes it very clear through these prophecies that there is no restoration for Nineveh. So it's a stark contrast between Israel and Judah. Because what happens you know, with the, when Israel gets punished and Judah gets punished? Exile. The exile. And then after that, though, what happens? Yes, the restoration, the remnant, this kind of flourishing. So you have, you know, for, for Israel and Judah, you've got, you know, come in, get hammered by these other nations, destroyed, but then God restores them. For Nineveh, it's very clear that this is not going to happen. There's no restoration. There's no, the wound is incurable. There's no relief. For Nineveh, for this wicked nation, there is not going to be God coming in and restoring them. This is true punishment where his wrath is being executed. And that's that for the city. And it ends with a rhetorical question. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? This is the last verse of the entire book. It's interesting, Jonah also ends on a rhetorical question. The one about, you know, the should not have repentant or have compassion on the city that's got all these, you know, women and children in it. It's there's a contrast between Nahum and Jonah, because Jonah was written to the same group of people. 150, whatever it was, 120 years earlier. Uh, and they repented for a time. But then they did not repent. They went back to their evil ways. And eventually, by the time this prophecy rolls around, there is no Jonah. There's no God saying, hey, repent and I'm going to restore you. This is it. They had their chance. They repented for a time. It went fully back. And now the time for repentance is over. And there's no chance for them. So that's kind of a snippet, very quick overview of what the book looks like. Again, high-level impressions. What we're struck with as we read it is, man, God should strike fear into us, and wow, Nineveh, you know, they're pitiable. They're, you would not want to be Nineveh. So, how do we see Christ and his church in this book? Unlike Micah, where we studied last week. Remember Micah, there was all this messianic prophecy. It talked about where Jesus was going to be born. It was just over and over talking about Jesus. There's not that same type of messianic prophecies talking about, oh, Jesus is going to come in and restore you. But we do see and we do learn about Jesus in here. And the first way we do that is we see this idea of God coming in as a warrior king. We read the snippets about him, you know, coming and melting mountains, blowing the rocks apart. That was a few verses. The whole first chapter is this description of God as this warrior king. And there's actually a lot of places in scripture where Jesus is described as a warrior king. So can anybody think of 
just offhand, where in Scripture can you think of a way that Jesus is described like as this conquering warrior? Ben? In Revelation, when he's riding on a white horse, yeah. the sword is coming out of his mouth. Yeah. His yeah. So clear. I mean, it's, yeah, Jesus is coming, riding on a white horse, sword coming out of his mouth, scary, like he is the warrior king. Yeah, absolutely. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and tread on the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. And on his robe and in his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's, that's Jesus, King of Kings, this warrior coming to destroy his enemies. Are there any, the other ones might be a little less obvious or harder to think of. Can anybody think of any other? No? Okay, so in Isaiah 7, yeah, like wonder, or uh, 9, I think. Yeah, it's Isaiah 9. Um, wonderful counselor, mighty God. Yeah, Jesus is like this, that's a prophecy looking forward to Jesus, but saying that he's going to be <laughs> ruling. AJ? So, oops. yeah, I don't, when he's talking, perhaps saying about the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, I don't know if that's as much with him. Right. But Craig, were you going to? Yeah, yeah, God's coming in to crush Satan, right? It's like this triumphant. I, I thought of some other ones, but I also, you know, obviously had more time to think about this. Um, Psalm 2, Jesus is a prophecy about Christ. He will rule with a rod of iron. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask me and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Very clear. Actually, you know, the whole rod of iron concept too, just like the verse you mentioned, Ben. Psalm 45, that song, I think it was Gabe wrote it the arrangement too that we've been singing. Gird on your sword, on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty, and your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, and your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then like Psalm 10, the Lord said, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. And then the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So we... There's all this prophecy that Jesus, about Jesus, about him coming and being this warrior king, destroying his enemies. You see it in Revelation. You see it, all, I think we tend to think of Jesus as this gentle giant, which he is gentle. I mean, it says in Isaiah 43, it's like a bruised reed he will not break. He's so tender to his people and to those who are you know, broken. He will feed his flock like a shepherd but it's not the whole picture of him, right? Again, this kind of going back to like, we need to understand Jesus through the whole lens of scripture. He is so gentle to his people, but he is also a powerful God and should be feared. And at some point he is going to come, you know, so Christ in his church, Christ is going to come, come back and he's going to be riding on the clouds and he's going to be executing justice 
And that's going to happen. So we, we worship this, this king who is coming back to destroy his enemies. And finally, just Jesus is victorious. This, there's this truth that Christ is going to be victorious over his enemies. And it might sound drastic, like talking about enemies and, you know, we'd, it's sometimes weird to think like, oh, do we really have enemies? But for the church today, like who, who are our enemies as, it, as the church, the church at large? Do we have enemies today? Yes. Yes, okay. What might be an example of one? Yeah. Who at first at the surface would seem to be an ally. Right. But in the end are even more dangerous than the level of deception. Right. Yeah. So yeah, enemies who are within within the body of you know, within the doors of the church that are wolves in sheep's clothing, that are yeah, for whatever reason or another, trying to subvert the work. Yeah. AJ, were you gonna say something? I was gonna say though progressive uh, sexual mm. Alphabet Mafia, yes, LBGTQ plus. Um, yeah, that whole you know woke mentality that's just like so opposed to blatantly opposed to scripture. Nate. Yes, very good. The struggle is spiritual. We struggle. Yeah, we wrestle not with with the flesh and blood, but with the powers and principalities, the powers of darkness. Satan is at work still. His end destruction is coming too, but we, I think sometimes you might hear like people describe that enemies of the Christians is the world, the flesh, and the devil, which is very broad, kind of every, you know, everything that we said probably falls into one of those. The, the world being the, yeah, that doctrine that's just opposed to the Bible, but then also the flesh, like our own sin is warring with us, trying to, to bring us down. And Greg? I think it's easy to see the tactics of our enemies. Mm, okay. How so? The successes of this world, the measurements of success. Mm. Um, the pragmatics, you know, if you're not cheating, you're not cheating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, un- yeah, understanding, if you couldn't hear or if for those on the recording, the tac- under- it's easy to see, Greg says, it's easy to see the tactics that our enemies use. Because we can look and, yeah, see like these things that are very designed to tear us away from God. That's Satan's goal. Satan knows, you know, what he wants. He wants to prevent the spreading of the gospel. And he wants to make us miserable. As Christians, if we have true saving faith in Christ, Satan can't take our soul. It belongs to Jesus but he can do what he wants, everything he can, like he tried to do with Job, to make us miserable. And our sin is one of the biggest things that will do that, our own sin. He will tempt us to you know, give in to our sin in all these different ways to make us miserable, to make us ineffective for Christ, to get our eyes, you know, rather than focusing on the goal of building Christ's church, to you know, focus on ourselves in all, in all these different ways. So, but the comfort in all this is that... <laughs> Jesus is victorious, is that he is going to come and one day that struggle will be over. 
that against the flesh, and against the world, and against the devil. So this is a hope that we have as Christians. Like, yes, things might look bleak, but we have hope. We know that Jesus is going to come back, and we can rest in that and act in that. So a few things, just as we, as we wrap up our, our time talking about Nahum. There's this idea that God is sovereign. He uses, he uses the nation, this evil nation of uh, Assyria, to punish his people. We saw the plan, we, you know, the verses we read, like this was a long time coming. God had this plan for a thousand years, you know, thousands of years where he was working everything. Uh, you know, Nim, Nimrod founded Nineveh in 2000 BC. That was part of God's plan. God had established Nineveh before even the nation of Israel was a thing. You know, knowing that they're going to come and he's going to use them one day as this punishing nation. God, when we say sovereign, you know, what we mean is that things that happen, happen because God ordained them, because God planned them. Nothing happens outside of God's plan. And this concept is a struggle for a lot of people. It certainly has been at points for me, too. And we could probably talk for, you know, six weeks just on the idea of God's sovereignty. But it's so clear that God used this people of Assyria to accomplish his purpose. And, uh, you know, if you're wondering, like, oh, how, how is it fair of God to use a, a, wicked, a, a nation that's more wicked to punish a, a you know, a less wicked nation? Because Assyria was more wicked than Israel was. So if you're wondering that, you're not the first person to. Habakkuk actually wonders the same thing, which we're going to be talking about next week. So come back next week if you want to you know, unpack that some more. But God has this plan. And it can be a struggle for people, but as I've grown and read more of the scriptures, to me it's a huge comfort. Because I know that God, his whole plan works good for his people. So nothing that happens is outside of that, of that good plan that he has for his people. So it, it ceases to become something that's like scary or, uh, you know, that we kick against. And it starts to be a source of great comfort. Like, man, nothing is going to happen that God, that's a surprise to God. And it's all for, for our good. And then when we think about how we should be worshiping, we should worship with energy. And we should worship with this fear of God in our minds. I, you know, I, again, I mentioned earlier, just like mainstream Christian worship doesn't contemplate this. I think our church, or for a lot of people, church, worship is a mental exercise, or it's emotional, purely emotional, where there's not much substance to the words we're saying, but there's cool effects and you know, musical effects or light, or you know, whatever it is, like trying to elicit this strong emotional response. That's not how we should be worshiping God. We should be worshiping God with energy and spirit and truth as a sacrifice. I think our church has made this commitment. The leaders of our church have made this commitment years ago, saying that we are going to have worship that fosters energy and is involved for people and is, I, I understand it's, it can be loud for people, people who you know, might not be used to that type of music, but there's a reason we do it. So I encourage you, you know, worship, worship with your, you know, raise your hands. Like, 
understand the God that we're coming before to worship. And then finally, the time for repentance. God is merciful. He even gave this wicked nation of Nineveh, or this wicked city of Nineveh, a time to repent. Right? He sent Jonah. He gave him the chance. He's merciful. But there was a time when the day of repentance was over and the day of judgment came and there was no longer opportunity. For us, this is the day of repentance. We're still alive. We don't know how long that's going to last, though. It sounds cliche, but it's not. I mean, we, we could all die tomorrow in a car accident. Now is the time to repent. So as we think of what God wants us to do, the things that we know we should be doing, the, the sins that we hold on to, that we, all, that we all have, you know, now is the time to repent before that day of repentance is, or yeah, before the day of repentance is over. So, all right, let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.